Welcome to the Bridge Builder Radio Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. During the Bridge Builder Program, we help you to connect faith and public life, how to bring the gospel into the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference and the host of the Bridge Builder Radio Program. Joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, good morning, everyone. Hoping that you are having a very blessed weekend. You can catch the Bridge Builder program each Saturday here on Relevant Radio AM 1330 at 11 a.m. You can also catch up on past episodes online. Just visit mncatholic.org podcast. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week on the Bridge Builder, we will bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in the public arena. We'll also answer your questions. You can email them to show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org. Or you can contact us, of course, on Facebook, Instagram, and that thing they call Twitter. And it wouldn't be the Bridge Builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you can build bridges to bring the faith in the public arena each week. Today, we have a very special guest uh, on the inaugural episode of the Bridge Builder radio program. Today, we're joined by Archbishop Joseph Kurtz of the Archdiocese of Louisville. He is the chairman of the USCCB Committee on Religious Liberty. He's going to share with us a little bit of his insights about the religious liberty landscape. We'll talk a little about the Federal Equality Act that was recently passed in the U.S. House of Representatives, the importance of interfaith relationships in building solidarity around the religious freedom movement, and how all of these things are impacting our worship and service in the public arena and for the common good. Following the interview with Archbishop Kurtz, we'll say a little bit about uh, your questions from the mailbag, and then we'll get into our bricklayer segment. The interview with Archbishop Kurtz is very timely because we're following up on the uh, at the conclusion of Religious Liberty Week, which began June 22nd, and is an important time for the Church in the United States to pr- pray and think and educate ourselves about the importance of this cherished gift of religious liberty. We're now joined by Archbishop Kurtz of Louisville. Archbishop Joseph Kurtz is a native of uh, Pennsylvania, and he's a priest of the Diocese of Allentown. He is formerly the Bishop of Knoxville, Tennessee, and has been the Archbishop of Louisville since 2007. Good morning, Archbishop Kurtz. Well, good morning, Jason. Hey, thanks so much for uh, for allowing me to be part of this podcast. It's exciting. Oh, it's it's a blessing to have you, and uh, we just love putting it together and uh, talking about important issues, and it's been really well received. So uh, great to have uh, you share your insights with us this morning. Great. Thank you. I'm, I'm privileged. Tell us a little bit first the, about uh, your appointment to the Committee for Religious Liberty and what you have found personally uh, to be beneficial or engaging or uh, important about that service. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, uh, I've been a bishop just shy of 20 years, this, uh, and uh, uh, pretty much for all of that, I've been engaged uh, in some level with our uh, USCCB, our Bishops' Conference. It's really been a privilege for me to serve in that way. Um, uh, Just two years ago, I was elected as the chair of the uh, Committee on Religious Liberty, as you mentioned, and and privileged to be able to do that. Uh, Part of my background is uh, that as a social worker and someone who through the 70s and 80s was very much involved with uh, the Pennsylvania Catholic Conference, uh, I have had an interest in public policy and, and a little background because of my degree in social work and preparing for that. So it's some way, somewhat a, a, a way for me to kind of give back. 
what excites me especially about this Committee on Religious Liberty is that uh, the gift of religious liberty is not appreciated in our culture as I think it should be. So while it's, it's a, a, a great challenge for us to take up this issue, it's also one that is so very important. Um, uh, you and I know that the, the, the United States of America is founded uh, on many principles, but a bedrock and first liberty is religious liberty. You know, people came to the United States more than 200 years ago, and specifically in forming these United States, uh, founded it on principles that would allow people, first of all, to uh, be consistent to, ex- to seek the truth uh, through their faith and through their conscience, to be able to live consistently with that truth, and then, and this is very important, to be able to contribute to the welfare of our nation precisely by bringing the richness of their truth and uh, and convictions uh, to bear. So religious liberty is is something that is so important for us to uh, to maintain. But it's it's also something that perhaps uh, people don't always see the dangers. Uh, that are at our doorstep. Uh, Jason, I will say this, that I think most people looking uh, throughout the world would say, well, gee, I see religious persecution going on in the Middle East or in in, in parts of Africa, uh, the areas of China, and they would say, yeah, we we need to really defend the ability of someone to practice their faith. People who run the risk of losing their life simply because of their effort to worship. But uh, in the United States, uh, I, I would concur with that, that that is certainly a grave, grave priority that we need to uh, also uh, uh, promote. But but th- there's also this this notion within the United States of, of narrowing and, and making private uh, what is really a public commitment, and that is a commitment to live our faith. Uh, it has become, in many people's minds, uh, simply a, a freedom for one hour or one hour and a half a week to worship, but then to leave that worship at uh, the door of the church or synagogue or mosque and, and to uh, uh, not show our faith. And that, of course, uh, is not only to the detriment of all of us, but I think uh, most especially to our nation. So I'm I'm really excited about it. I'm 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 aware that that uh, we need to be able to let people know in very rational ways that that we need to take steps to uh, promote religious liberty in a way that seeks the welfare of all human beings and the dignity of all human beings. So uh, thanks for asking me about that general question. Absolutely, and it and it's been seven years since the U.S. bishops published the document, uh, "Our First Most Cherished Liberty." And of course, the USCCB mm-hmm. has been defending religious liberty for far longer than uh, 2012. But in in a real firm commitment and in a broad pastoral and educational and very proactive way, we've had this campaign. Uh, it's a very public campaign to protect and promote religious liberty. Where do you see some of the key successes of that outreach thus far, and where do you think we still need to move the needle in the discussion? 
Well, you know what? People respond to very specific and concrete issues. So um, I don't think we're a nation that likes to study and talk theoretically and abstractly about things. So uh, if if we are to have headway and success in 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 not only preserving but also taking pride in the gift of religious liberty, I think we need to be able to come in a very concrete way on these things. Uh, you mentioned seven years. Well, uh, it's been seven years that, for example, the Little Sisters of the Poor have sought to to continue to serve in a way th- that does not compromise their integrity of faith, the way in which they hire people, the way in which they uh, provide health care benefits. And uh, the HHS mandate made quite significant and popular uh, over these last number of years with the many lawsuits that have been involved, uh, I think uh, have illustrated the need that uh, these sisters are, are not looking to sue people. They're, they're looking to serve, but they want to serve with integrity of faith. And I think many people uh, have been drawn to understand uh, the importance of not imposing on them restrictions in the way they serve that would actually take away the very engine that motivates them, uh, the very uh, desire to serve God uh, by the way they treat especially uh, frail elderly people who so much need their help. We've here had, I think, uh, sort of hit or miss success in, in building interfaith relationships and ecumenical relationships on religious liberty. So, for example, during Religious Freedom Week, we had a great panel discussion, Catholics and Muslims in dialogue about building religious freedom. We've reached out to defend uh, a nurse who is a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, We're always working with ecumenical partners, the Mormon community, et cetera, et cetera. But the state of Minnesota is also suing the Little Sisters of the Poor, as you mentioned, and we don't see people rushing to defend them. So uh, can you say a little bit about the way in which the church has worked assiduously, I think, in my opinion, to build ecumenical and interfaith relationships? And from your perspective, what success we've had in, in being able to do that, and why do you think it maybe hasn't been successful in some in, on some fronts? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing we can say is remember that religious liberty is not simply a Catholic issue. It's, it's an issue that relates to the very fabric of our nation, that when we find ourselves in a position where the majority, uh, often the majority opinion, is being imposed on others, that's a recipe for totalitarian state. Uh, that gets to the very basis of, of what we're about. So uh, our efforts to build coalitions, uh, never an easy process. Anytime we're dealing with contentious issues, especially that are involved in in national debates, it's not easy to be able to present uh, accurately our view without being caricatured or or, uh, uh, put into a a false corner. So uh, the, the Church, seeking partners in all cases, continues, I think, to work, uh, as you well mentioned, in, in, first of all, never tiring to promote the desire on our part to treat every person with dignity. Uh, we also need to be able to, to tell the story, because there's, um, there's also a narrative out there, and this is one of our challenges, that somehow uh, religious liberty is, is in some way being twisted to be a, a freedom to discriminate against people. And, of course, uh, there's nothing farther from the truth. Uh, 
the basis of, of religious freedom within our most recent Catholic teachings comes from the Second Vatican Council uh, Declaration on Religious Freedom called uh, Dignitatis Humanae. You're, you're familiar with it, Jason. And in it, it, it mentions the dignity of every person being founded on this desire and, and requirement to be free to seek the truth, to be able to live that truth, and then to contribute uh, to society. It also mentions something very important, and that is religious freedom is, is not absolute, meaning it has to be within due limits. And so within the United States, thank God we have a, a court system that uh, does have a chance to regulate things when uh, there, there's a question of, well, or, or is, is this being treated in a fair way? And I think you know the, the principle of strict scrutiny that has been, I think, a time-honored approach, with the, especially with the Supreme Court, has always uh, maintained when there is a dispute on whether uh, the freedom of religious uh, conscience is, is in some way impinging upon other rights. Uh, there's a there's a threefold test. Uh, the test would be is is the uh, belief that is in question sincerely held. Uh, there's a question: is there a compelling government interest to intervene? And then once that question is solved, the third is: uh, have we reached what would be the least restrictive solution? And uh, with the Little Sisters of the Poor, you used that example earlier, it's, it's even if one would concede that, that the government has a compelling reason to perhaps make uh, uh, procedures that we would find objectionable uh, available to everybody, even if you conceded that, uh, the third question becomes, uh, is it the least restrictive way? Is, uh, must we force the Little Sisters of the Poor to, to provide and pay for objectionable procedures? Is that the only way to achieve what might be seen as a compelling government interest? So while it gets very complex, um, I think we're making some headway in being able to, uh, to deal specifically with these issues. You make an important point that the defense of religious liberty is not the defense of a, of a get out of jail free card. It's it's liberty. It's not license. And our position is that Correct. the government should not burden the free exercise of religion absent some compelling interest. Right. And sometimes there are compelling interests. And that I think is a, a great. Well, that's exactly right. And, and we're living we're living in uh, the great United States of America in which uh, we enjoy that freedom. Uh, the freedom often means that that there will be competing interests that people will not agree, and you hope that that uh, the dialogue and even the debate will remain civil, and that there will be ways forward that uh, reasonable people will say yes, that's that's uh, not impinging on the rights of others, and yet it is done in a way that preserves the great gift of religious freedom. Uh, anybody who wants to short circuit that by removing uh, that analysis, I think, runs the risk of, uh, of moving into uh, a government that's imposing itself on others. And that, I don't think any of us wants that. 
Archbishop, that's a great segue into my final question, which is about the Equality Act. And I think in a time, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, when Christians are being bombed in Sri Lanka, the Chinese government seems to be very proactive in its movement against Christians, but then Muslims are being uh, persecuted in Myanmar and other places. So there's global religious persecution, and sometimes people have the sense that when we talk about religious liberty in the U.S. context, it's alarmist or whatever. But uh, the Equality Act, I think, is a new level of uh, anti-religious sentiment and poses some real problems for the church and other believers. Can you just say a little bit about why the U.S. Bishops' Conference was so very proactive and forceful in its criticism of the Equality Act? Sure, sure. Well, well. first of all, uh, I think uh, we're already digging out of a hole because who would not want to seek equality? Bingo, yeah. I think we all want to treat people with dignity. We don't want to treat people unfairly. So uh, that 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 name is something that in many ways we all are for. The Church is, is not for uh, uh, unjust discrimination against people. It's not for treating people in a way less than the dignity that they deserve as children of God. So that's the first thing. Uh, secondly, however, it's a poorly written a piece of legislation. Uh, anybody who studies it will realize that it has carved out uh, what are all of the uh, time-honored safeguards that are, are part of what was in 1993, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. This was a bipartisan-supported act back in 1993. It gave uh, the the very reasonable things that I talked in the segment earlier. It said uh, that any act needs to take into account not imposing upon uh, the religious freedom of others. It, It gave, I think, a reasonable way forward to judge when there are conflicts. Uh, this particular uh, Equality Act, as it's currently written, simply removes all those safeguards. And so uh, any, any I mean, I could give you a whole list of, of immediate difficulties uh, that occur, whether it's with Catholic charities or with uh, charitable shelters or foster care, but it, it, it even gets to the very basis of the capacity for a a religious organization to have a a policy of Christian witness to say, well, our employees need to be able to act in accordance with the very principles on which uh, our uh, organization is based. So uh, our biggest problem would be that it is poorly written. Um, It it is something that I think uh, we have to fight uh, uphill on because uh, simply calling it the Equality Act makes people say, well, how could you be against equality? And we're not. Uh, but, but, but you have to go beneath the surface and see what will be the actual results uh, of uh, if this were, it's passed already in the House, if for some reason it, uh, it were, were passed in the Senate and became law. It seems like a shield. It's not so much a shield against discrimination as a, as it much as is a sword against people of faith, uh, and really trouble. You know, uh, it it is, and it's it's a, it's unfortunately it's a it's a method of what I would call uh, uh, imposition. It whereas the doctrine we talked earlier was to say let's look at the rights of people, let's look at the least restrictive way to ensure their rights. That sophistication is completely removed from this act as it's currently written. 
for our listeners, we'll put up more information uh, about the USCCB's outreach on the so-called Equality Act and provide uh, listeners with more information. Yeah, about- Jason, I hope you will, because you can put very specific issues that uh, that that uh, would, would, would be the implications that, that make us act so strongly. Archbishop Kurtz, we're so delighted that you came on the show this morning and joined us. We're very grateful for your outstanding service on behalf of the Church in the United States and your leadership defending our first most cherished liberty. Thanks so much, Archbishop Kurtz. God bless you. Thank you so much, Jason, and God bless you during this month of July. Thank you. Take Bye-bye. care. Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Radio Show. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. And in this segment, we're going to delve into our mailbag where we answer your comments and questions that you've sent to our producer, Kit Cross. One of the ways in which you can do that is connecting with us through our email. You can email us at show at mncatholic.org or simply post a question on Facebook um, and let us know what you're thinking. We want to use this as an opportunity to answer some of your questions you have about what's going on in the public arena or the outreach of the Minnesota Catholic Conference at our state capitol. Kit, what's in our mailbag today? So, Jason, earlier this year we asked attendees for Catholics at the Capitol, what does it mean to them to be a faithful citizen? And a lot of people responded with answers that included, well, I need to be praying for my elected officials. I should also be out voting. And a few people also mentioned applying Catholic social teaching to the issues. So if you could summarize for us, what does this term, faithful citizenship, mean? And how does Catholic social teaching play into that? I know it's kind of a big question. It is. A, it's a big question. What does it mean to be a faithful citizen? Someone who lives really as a member of the uh, citizen in, in the term, the Latin term civitas or a Greek term polis. They all just mean the city or the community. How can we be faithful participants in city life? And and important just from the standpoint of who we are from a human anthropological or Christian perspective is that we're made for relationships. And our relationships, of course, start with our creator, our Lord Jesus Christ, our families, our church, but it also extends into our communities. And it's in that social life uh, that we, in which we live the gospel. Uh, we bring that love of Christ into all the uh, various components and sectors of our life. We bring it to the very peripheries of our community. And a community just means a sharing of gifts. So to be a faithful citizen at the very basic sense uh, means to share your gifts with the community. And we all have gifts that are unique and no one else has. Uh, We're part of the link in the chain and we can share those gifts with others. So first of all, praying and reflecting on how you share and bring your gifts and live the gospel uh, not just in uh, the, your home or in the church, but also in the broader community. That love our neighbor. What does it mean to love our neighbor? So praying and reflecting on that at the first level. But also, we politics and citizenship is also how we order our lives together, right? And how that's a great conversation about how we order our lives together. So in that conversation, everyone has to play a role. Now, voting, of course, is an important part of that. But uh, faithful citizenship is something that happens more than just on the first Tuesday in November. But but it's a it's a year round process, mm-hmm. and it's important that we pray and think and act about mm-hmm. how we can share our gifts uh, in the political process. Now we're all called to different things. Some people have the call to uh, run for political office, to be an elected official. Other people um, 
uh, it can uh, walk in parade routes, work for candidates. They can send letters to the editor. They can inform themselves on a particular issue and become an activist. At the very minimum, everyone can pray. We can pray for our elected officials, be in communication with them, and thank them. So uh, faithful citizenship is a, is a broad dynamic, but means how we live the gospel in community life at the very minimum. But then in the context of how we make laws and order our common life together um, in the political process, we each have unique roles and responsibilities as citizens. And that can mean at minimum praying and voting, but it can also mean a lot more. And it all depends on to what extent we're called to do various things. Wonderful. And how might we actually start to put that into action? Well, I think at the very minimum, I mean, most people are involved in charitable efforts and doing things in the community, whether you're in the Knights of Columbus or um, some other organization, you're involved on a community board or a working with the school, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're looking at the political process, I think the first thing is to identify your elected officials. How can we expect good laws to be made if we don't know who is making them and if we're not in relationship to them? Uh, As there's an old saying, it's the open mouth is the one that gets fed. Mm -hmm. So if we're not in relationship and speaking with and to our elected officials, we can't expect that good laws are going to be made. And if we go back to that ancient concept of uh, the, the community and the, the polis is the place in which we, politics is the way in which we order our common life together, then we all have to participate in that process for it to be effective. We all have unique gifts to share, and we have to participate in that process and share those gifts if we want just laws. And that first, of course, requires that we form our own consciences because you can't give what you don't have. So know the church's teaching and Catholic social teaching and then be able to share that and apply that into the concrete questions of daily public and political and social life. Well, that's great. So before we go today, can you give our listeners some practical tips on what they can do to actually start building bridges? So we like to call this the bricklayer segment. If we're at, It's the Bridge Builder radio show and the bricklayer segment, and, and a good and just social order is built brick by brick. So what's one thing that we can each do? I mentioned the importance of being in relationship with your elected officials. This is parade season and uh, festival season, and believe it or not, your elected officials are at these things because they want to uh, get their name, of course, out in front of you, and they want to meet people, but they also want to hear your perspective. I think we... We just often castigate politicians as self-interested people who only care about their own election. But actually, they do want to hear from you because they rely on you and your perspective to understand what's going on in their district or in their area and how they can be better servants. Um, I can tell you from experience that most elected officials are good people who want to do the right thing, and they need you as a resource. No one person has been given the gift of omniscience. Um, in the sense of they know everything right away and they don't need anyone else's help. So they need your perspective. They need your consultation. And these parades um, and the town halls and all the various events that elected officials are holding over the summer are great ways in which you can introduce yourself to your elected official, thank them, let them know you're praying for them. And then maybe there's an issue on your heart that you want to talk to them about and share with them. And that's a great opportunity to do so. So parades during parade season, uh, during the summer when legislators are holding town halls, um, you can even call them up. This is a great time to get together with them on Saturday mornings for coffee. Many of them have uh, coffee clatches at the local McDonald's on mm-hmm. Saturday morning. So legislators are accessible. They want to hear from you. And summer is a great way to make contact with them. And especially as we start thinking about this 2020 legislative session here in Minnesota, sharing with them your opinion about the work they did do in 2019 and what you think um, is going to be a big issue in 2020.
That's great. Any other final thoughts for our listeners on getting others involved, maybe from their parish and that coffee meeting you were talking about? Well, it's easier to do things when you're with a group of people, right? You got to have a, sometimes it's good to have a wingman, as we like to say. Um, And again, legislators and elected officials, they want to meet with you. They want to hear your perspective. Get five friends. Um, Undoubtedly, many of us have groups of folks with whom we regularly get together uh, for whatever reason, couples, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and invite a, a legislator out to coffee and uh, get three or four couples together and just have a conversation. You wouldn't believe they're really willing to do that, though. But we work well together in groups, and I think having other people um, reinforce your perspective uh, on particular issues that people care about uh, is important. They know that if six or eight people care about an issue, most likely 40 to 50 care about it as well who haven't communicated. But again, it's the open mouth that gets fed. That's been our show for today. We're grateful uh, for uh, your listenership. We hope it's been an informative one. If you'd like to be a show sponsor and help Catholics bring their faith into the public arena, you can be a sponsor of The Bridge Builder. For more details, email our producer, Kit, at show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org. If you have any questions or comments, send them to that same address, show at mncatholic.org, or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Then tune in next week to find out if we can include, if we do include, your question or comment. Remember, you can catch up on any past episodes online at mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for the Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much for tuning in today to the Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and politics and live missionary discipleship in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, along with Kit Cross from the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Have a great weekend. God bless you.